I invite you to look in your Bible at Genesis 32, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 32. If you want to follow along in the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, that's on page 33. And um, I want to start off by asking a question. Do you know this word crisis? Do you know that word? Crisis? I looked it up. A crisis is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger, like the current economic crisis, which seems like it's been with us for like since 2007, so it's current and longstanding. There's also a definition which is a crisis is a time when a difficult or important decision must be made, such as a crisis point in history, or a critical point, or a turning point, or a crossroads. Sometimes we call it a watershed. It's a moment where a path has to diverge and you have to choose from one side or another. In fact, this word comes from the Greek word krisis, which means decision, a point where you make a decision, or krinein, which means to decide. Crisis is also a medical term. Who are my medical folks here? What does crisis mean medically? Yes, Renee. When a patient's declining or not doing well or potentially getting better is what I read. It's the turning point of a disease when an important change takes place, indicating either recovery or death. That's a crisis medically. That's what it means in the medical jargon. So I want to look at this today. We actually have a crisis today in our reading between Jacob and between God. And Jacob was also going to have a crisis in his relationship with his brother Esau. So I want to back up a little bit and tell a little bit of the story of Jacob. And I know many of you know this from Sunday school. My son, even today, we were talking about it. And he said, oh, I know that story. He kind of cheated his brother out of something. Yeah. The word Jacob, the name Jacob, means the one that grasps the heel because he was grabbing his twin brother's heel as he came out of the womb. But also it means somebody who deceives Jacob the liar, Jacob the deceiver. Jacob has a lot of ethical challenges in his life. Very few of them he manages to handle appropriately. So remember, just a little bit of background. One day, Jacob is home in the camp, and his brother comes home, uh, his older brother comes home, who's totally famished, and Jacob has just made this delicious stew. You know this story? And his brother Esau says, I'm famished. Give me some of that stew. And instead of being a nice younger brother, he says, sell me your birthright, which is a double share of the family inheritance. Could be a lot more than a stew. Sell me your birthright, and I'll give you this little measly bottle, uh, bowl of stew. I think we got... Dave, can this one go off? Thanks. Great. So... That wasn't necessarily, that was tricky, although Esau went into it with his eyes open. Esau was just following his own appetites at that moment. And the Bible says that by doing so, Esau actually despised his own birthright. But he, Jacob bought his brother's birthright. Then later, the real deception begins. This was uh, his mother's idea, and yet he did it. Jacob actively deceived his own father. We're going to have to wait till that's done. No, we're not. Somebody close the doors out there. <laughs> um, is this a crisis? <laughs> Somebody's car is having a crisis. It's a, it's a point when an important change will take place, indicating either recovery or 
Demolition. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. So, what does Jacob do? He, he dresses up like he's his brother. He puts fur of an animal on his neck and on his, uh, his wrists, because his brother's hairier than him. And he goes to his father and brings him a meal that his father had asked Esau to go get. And because and, he knew that it was at that moment that his father was going to give his blessing to Esau. And he tricks his father, and his father says, Is that really you? Is that really you, Esau? You don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. Jacob says, No, it's, it's Esau. It's Esau. And so, long story short, he tricks his father into giving him Esau's blessing. And it was, again, it was his mother's idea. He gets away with it. For some reason, this blessing cannot be revoked, even though it was appropriated with dishonesty. You can't, I guess there's no backsies back then with blessings. And so he gets the blessing. Esau comes home, goes into his father and says, here's the meal I was going to prepare for you. Now you can give me your blessing. And the father says, Isaac says, well, I just gave it to you. Who, who are you now? And Esau says, it's me, Esau. And then Isaac understands, oh, I gave it to, I gave it to Jacob. Jacob tricked you out of it. And then Esau says, now Jacob has tricked me twice. First my birthright, my share of the inheritance, and now my father's blessing. And he vows to kill his brother. He has more respect for his father. This shows very lack of respect for his father. To trick his blind father uh, into taking his blessing is, is a sign of disrespect. Esau at least has a little bit of respect for his father. He says, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. I'm not going to kill my brother while my father's still alive. I'll spare him that. But as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. And uh, their mother says to Jacob, you better run because, it's, she says, and this is really interesting language in the Old Testament, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, Esau was like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And this fire inside of me is going to keep me warm at night for a long, long time. I'm going to console myself with the thought of killing my brother. And so he's breathing out that he's going to kill his brother. And so Jacob, who is smaller than his brother and is not an accomplished hunter, but Esau is a hunter, uh, maybe Jacob realizes, I'm next to be hunted. I'm going to be the next game. And so he runs away, and his mother says, Go to your uncle Laban and hide until your brother forgets what you've done. That's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever read in the Bible, actually. Can, have you ever forgotten something that someone has done to you that hurt you and wounded you? Have you forgotten it? No, that doesn't happen. I mean, I remember once I, I, I had a falling out with my sister, and it took a few years, but finally I had to kind of, I decided that we needed to get to the place where we moved on in the relationship. So I called her up and I said, Lisa, do you remember the time when we had that argument? What do you think she said? Oh, yes, I remember that. Of course you remember it. I remembered it. She remembered it. There's no hoping that memory will fade of things like that. That's pointless. The only thing to do is move forward. The only thing to do is reconcile 
and go forward. So his mother's even giving him bad advice. Maybe someday he'll forget. No. He's consoling himself with the thought of killing you. You don't forget something like that. So, long story short, he goes off to his uncle Laban, and he gets tricked. The tricker gets tricked. He gets tricked by his uncle Laban, but then he turns the, t the tables on his uncle and tricks his uncle. And so it's just a really tricky kind of, just kind of a messed up family, right? The Bible's really good at showing us messed up families. This one has a lot of things. When you look at, at just Rebecca, she favors one son over the other. She, she loves her son Jacob more than she loves her son Esau. Partly because she doesn't like Esau's wives. So the mother-in-law doesn't like the daughters-in-law. And so she chooses the other son who's not married yet. And even says, go steal your brother's blessing from your father, my husband. Isn't that crazy? Kind of a messed up family. Jacob goes off, gets tricked, and tricks in return. And once he tricks his uncle Laban, he has to leave Laban. He's got to go. And so now we're going to get to the place where we are now. Uh, where he realizes, I've got to stop running from all these things. I've got to face the music. This is over 20 years later, by the way. Remember, he had to work seven years for one of Laban's daughters. He had to work another seven years for another Laban's, one of Laban's daughters. He had to work six more years to get some of the flocks. So we're talking 20 years later or more, Jacob finally realizes, this is exhausting. I haven't seen my brother in 20 years. I've got to go at least figure this out with him. And so that's where we are now. So go ahead and look at your Bible. Genesis 32, and we'll start at verse 22. Right before this, Jacob had sent, knows that his brother is on the horizon. He sends several of his servants ahead of him to meet his brother with all sorts of gifts, hoping it will soften his up because he knows there's a conversation coming up with his brother. He's still afraid that his brother's going to kill him. He's thinking he's going to buy him off. I'm going to send some sheep, some goats. I'm going to send these servants to my brother. Maybe by the time he gets past all those other people in between us, when he faces me, then he'll be, maybe I'll get out of this with my life intact if I give him everything I own. Because after all, I did steal from him. So that's where we are now. Verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face. And yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Look at verse 24. Go ahead and look in your Bible. We have this sudden shift of, of action here where Jacob is spending the night. He sends his family ahead of him, um, sends them all across the stream with the possessions, and he spends the night alone. And it says, out of nowhere, it says, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Sort of out of the blue, this person comes and starts a wrestling match with Jacob. Now, Jacob understands later, and maybe right away, but for sure later, that this man that he's wrestling with is God himself. Jacob is wrestling with God in the night. It's dark, so he can't see him, but there's this human form there that starts a wrestling match with him. Does that strike you? Anyone that's a little sort of odd? Yeah, they're like, okay, I'm spending the night out in the open. I'm all alone. A strange human form comes to me that I can't see, and we wrestle all night long. Okay, makes perfect sense, I guess. Um, But now ask yourself this question. Why was it all night long? Do we really think that God could not out-wrestle Jacob? Right? Think about this. Jacob's like, okay, bring it, God. Let's, Let's do this. You know? Are you going to come out victorious on that one? But it's a draw. It's a draw. All night long. All night long. Daybreak is approaching, and nobody has won this yet. Okay? What are the options here? Option one is that God's just sort of playing with him, right? Just stringing him along like, I'm I'm just using all the power in this little finger right now to wrestle with him. But any moment I want to, I could just, you know, pin him down and that would be it. That's option one, that God is is really not bringing all he has to this encounter. The other option is that when God entered human form like this, he was equally matched with Jacob. Think about that. Does that remind you of anything? We've, We've been saying before, and not everybody has heard this because we've been preaching through the Old Testament, that God enters the world in relationship with his people. And when he does so, at times, he limits himself. He limits his ability. Sometimes he even limits his volition, by which I mean he's open to other decisions being made. And you see this with Abraham. He goes to Abraham and he says, what should I do with this city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Should I destroy it all? And Abraham says, well, let's let's have a conversation about it. And God submits to that conversation. God, when he meets Hagar in the wilderness, submits to her naming him, which is very unusual. God limits his own power in that sense. And here in this sense, God limits his physical power in a physical contest of human strength in the middle of the night in a wrestling match with a man. This is symbolic, but it's also real. It's symbolic in the sense that God can't have relationship with us unless he's on some kind of equal footing with us. This is what we think about when we think about the incarnation. We think about how Jesus comes into the world in the flesh and had all the human weaknesses and all the human temptations and all the human experiences and all the human emotions that humans have and yet remain sinless. He was able to inhabit our world completely so that he could engage with us and relate to us completely. 
as an equal. Let me put it this way. Can an ant have a friendship with an elephant? Can it? I mean, maybe in a children's book it could. It'd be really a cute children's story, right? Oh, the ant and the elephant. No. An ant cannot have a relationship with an elephant. The ant will be lucky if the elephant doesn't just step on it by accident, right? There's no relationship between this vast chasm of power. There's no relationship there. And, and C.S. Lewis talks about this, too, a little bit, if you read some of his work. God had to enter the world and limit himself in some ways so that he could have true relationship with his creation. And this is one example of it here, is that there was an evenly matched, all-night-long wrestling encounter that neither side was winning. And it's a symbol of how God engages the world and limits himself. We could get into that. If you go too far into the limiting of God's self, you, it, it gets a little strange, I, I admit. Um, God still has some control and has some power. And this is what we're going to see next, is that God realizes that this relationship, whatever's happening, this, this all-night wrestling match, it has to come to an end. It's kind of stuck in one place, and it's really not moving forward. So God brings this relationship to a point of crisis, all right? That's where this crisis idea is coming back in. It's a point of departure, a point where something's coming to a head, a point where something has to move in one direction or another. And what he does is he, I don't know if this is bad form in wrestling, I don't know if there's any wrestlers here, used to be a wrestler, Andres, is it's wrong to punch somebody in the hip while you're wrestling with them, it's just wrong to punch in general, you're not supposed to do that, it's just wrong to disable somebody. A different kind of wrestling, yeah, don't do it. So God strikes Jacob in the hip so that Jacob is a little bit incapacitated, so that the wrestling match will eventually have to end. Now, God does this out of mercy for Jacob because when daylight comes, if Jacob sees God face to face, something bad is going to happen to Jacob. This is the understanding in the Old Testament. If we look at God in the daytime, if we see God's face, it's not going to go well for us. It's not going to be a good thing. All right, And so God is sparing Jacob from the, from the daylight. God says, the daylight's coming. We have to spare Jacob from seeing my face. I've got to bring this wrestling match to an end. And so he punches him in the, in the hip. And then the crisis is here. And something has to happen. And the relationship changes. So I want to talk a little bit, just a little bit about this, the idea of relationship. Relationships um, are like this. Things can get stuck. I think that the idea is that things can get stuck. I've been understanding this a lot uh, more in the last maybe year or two of my life. This idea that things can get stuck. I, I think maybe you all understand this. Uh, maybe, let me put it this way, maybe you work for a company that has been a little stuck. Does, does anyone know what I mean? Like, you have a product that nobody really likes, but you're still working on it, right? Um, Maybe you have a, a management system that's just not working and you, it's keeping you from adapting to what's going on. Now, we live in Silicon Valley, so that really can't, the crisis is going to come because th those companies just can't last, right? The crisis is always coming for those types of situations, right? Relationships can get stuck, all right? Where you're, you're wrestling all the time, but no progress is ever being made. There's contention all the time but there's no resolution, okay? I mean, maybe some of you can relate to that too. 
This is the idea that behavior occurs over and over and over again, and nothing breaks it out of its patterns. God is the one that comes into things like that, like relationships, especially even with our relationship with God, and brings a crisis. Brings a crisis, a moment that says, this, whatever this is, this stuckedness, can't stay this way forever because the outcome is either getting better or it's getting its death. It's a medical crisis in that sense. And so what I found is a reliable prayer. God, bring a crisis into my life. Be careful when you pray it because this one always gets answered yes. I'm serious. Like You could say, God, give me a new car, give me a new house, give me a beautiful wife, give me a beautiful husband or whatever. Maybe, you know, you know the standard answer is yes, no, wait a while, right? God, bring a crisis into my life. Yes! Yeah, I was waiting for you to ask. Absolutely. Is next Tuesday good for you? It's not too bad. It's coming. God is willing to, to do that. God is willing to bring crisis because he's, a crisis is a point where we can grow in our relationship with God. A crisis in a relationship with somebody else is when that relationship can move to the next level of health. God always wants that for us. And when you ask for something in God's will, he's just happy to give it to you. How do we know that God wants to do this? God has done this. And we look at the hall of human history. You could say that we have been stuck in a relationship with God, a pattern that repeats over and over and over. And you look at the Old Testament, and it's this weird it's like a playbook that just keeps getting played out over again, over again. Look at the history of Israel. Oh, the people were faithful to God, and then they started worshiping these other gods, and then God punished them by giving them into the hands of their enemies. And then a few people started following God again, and then they flirt. Do you know what I'm talking about? This thing, is, it happens like 20 times. It, you know, it's like, whoa, this is, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Right? You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you hope that something change? It won't. God had to bring his relationship with the human race to a point of crisis. He said, I can't wrestle with these people all night long and into the day. I can't wrestle with these people for three millennia because the outcome is only death then. It's not getting better by their efforts. So God in Jesus Christ injures not Jacob, not Israel, he injures himself. He puts his own son on the cross so that people could then face God. When the daybreak comes, when the morning dawns, all the sin is taken away, and you can look at God and not die. In fact, that's the only way you can look at God, is if you have no sin inside of you. And you have no sin because Jesus enters the world in the pattern of God limiting his own power so that he can have relationship with us. Do you see how this is all fitting together? This is the grand scheme. I love it. I love it. Jesus came into the world to fundamentally change all of your relationships, all of them, but especially with God the Father. He wants us to be reconciled with God and then set free to love other people with the love that God gave us, the reconciling love. And that love, it takes chances, it calls people to account, it protects people who are vulnerable, it sacrifices itself and my own needs. This happens for Jacob in this small little story, but it's a pattern 
of life in the whole world, and God uses it that way. So, what happens next? Jacob is changed, right? Jacob is a different person after this. He, he, the, the, the wrestling match comes to an end. He receives his blessing, but he also receives a name change. Did you notice that? He's one of the people in the Bible that gets a, a, a change in his name for the better. No longer are you Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, the sneak. Now you get another name, which may not be much better. Now you're Israel, those, the, the one who contends with God, the one who struggles with God. But you know, I prefer this. Because if you're, if you're sneaking, then you're just sneaking, right? You're just a sneak. But if you're contending and struggling with God, you're engaged with God. God is there with you. You're back and forth with him. There's some, there, you're rubbing up against him. There's something's going to rub off on you. So I'd much rather be Israel than Jacob. I'm glad, and I'm glad his name changed. So Jacob changes, yes, but the relationship changes. God commits to being engaged with Israel now, with Jacob, whose name is now Israel. And so that's our pattern, is that we can struggle constructively with God. Not stuck in a rut, but to struggle constructively with God where he rubs off on us. Where he pushes into our lives and we can push back. And in that interchange, we're changed and we're, we grow and we become more spiritually mature. The other thing that happens with Jacob is that now he's ready to have that conversation with his brother that he's been avoiding for 20 years. Isn't that a long time? I hope there's nobody in this room that hasn't talked to a sibling in 20 years, but in all reality, there could be at least one person in this room that has a living sibling that they haven't spoken with in 20 years. In a crowd this size, that's not unlikely. Now he's ready to face his brother. In fact, he's ready to die because for all he knows, Esau is still consoling himself with the thought of killing his brother. So what does he do? Before this, he had sent all these people out to Esau. Before this night of struggling with God, he sent all these people out with gifts to try to placate his brother. Accept these gifts. Maybe you'll find favor in your sight. Maybe it will ease. Maybe it'll help you forget. Maybe it'll cool down the fire inside of you. And I think what was next was that because he had sent his family across the river ahead of himself, his plan next was, okay, if Esau's still coming at me and he's walked past all my gifts to him, then he's going to meet my wives, my four wives, and my 11 children. And then hopefully by the time he gets to me, he'll be like, well, I can't kill this guy now because look at all, look at all the family members he have. They lose their husband and their father. So he was going to kind of use all these people between him and Esau to try to soften the blow. This is important. After this night of wrestling with God, Jacob changes course on all that. He puts his family behind him. And he decides that he's going to meet Esau face to face. Do you all see the difference? He's not sending anybody to his brother anymore. He's facing his brother directly the next morning. And we read on, you'll see that he's the first one to see Esau when Esau arrives. What's good news, and he doesn't know, is that Esau is in a mood to forgive. 
Esau has changed in 20 years. We don't know anything about this, and neither does Jacob. We find out in chapter 33. But Esau has, has changed, and he's in the mood to forgive. We'll see more about that later. But I want to take this moment to ask you to think, if you're in a relationship now where things are broken down, Are you in a relationship where you are stuck? You can't stay in that headlock forever. And you might need to be the one who brings it to a crisis. God wants you to probably bring it to a crisis. You may need to make the first move. I'm talking about somebody who some wounding has gone on, either them of you or you of them or what's most likely both of you towards each other. This happens, doesn't it? It happens in families, it happens in friendships. I think we're called to bring that to crisis, to a point where it goes one way or the other. And I, it could be as simple as this. I, this is what it could look like. Don't do it your own way, but this is what it could look like. You could go right up to that person and say something like this. Hey, um, I could be completely wrong here, but I sense that there's friction in our relationship. I'd really like to find a time when we could talk about it person to person. You don't have to answer now if you don't want to, because realize this could catch somebody off guard taking the first step like that. I'll email you in a few days. And then, of course, you have to do that, right? So a few days later, you email them. And the email is not a list of all the things you want to talk about, because that would start the conversation by email, which is not face-to-face. And conversations that go by email like this are usually disastrous. Do you know what I'm talking about? It does not work. Keep it short. Here's when I can, I'd, I'd like to meet. Here's when I'm available. Can we meet? Can we find some time to talk? And hopefully they'll say yes. As a, as if, especially if they're believers, as mature Christians, they would say to themselves, here's a relationship that's in trouble. I care about relationships. I care about my relationship with you. I would want to talk about something that's in between you and me so that we can get past it and move to the next step. So a mature person would want to say, absolutely, that's almost more important to me than almost anything else. I'll make time in my schedule for that conversation. I want to be there. I want to do this. I want to understand it. I want to patch things up. If that person isn't ready to have that conversation, and they may not be. You can't make them ready, right? All, all they have is whether they want to or not. If, they're not. if they're not responding to it, you have done your part. You can sleep at night now. Seriously. You can sleep like a baby that night because it's in their court. If they say no, you've done what you need to do as a follower of Jesus. You've done what you've... You've advertised your openness to repairing the relationship You wait for them to respond to it, but your life is not on hold while you wait. You can kind of, in a way, like I said, shake the dust off your feet at the edge of their town. In a way, you still love them, but you can't force them into this place where they want to reconcile with you. Only God can make that desire in them. Only the Holy Spirit can lead them in that direction. So you just pray for them that they'll soften up. Uh, But at that point, there's probably nothing more that you can do And so you can rest, and you're done. You're done. It's not up to you anymore. But if they do, have that conversation. Meet for coffee. Talk about it. It may take a few more meetings, you know? As we'll see later, this is one of the most beautiful things 
that can happen in anyone's life. Because conflict is with us all the time, no matter what. We can ignore it, but the reality is that it's always there. What we do with it is really the most important thing. And a conflict that's been reconciled is one of the most beautiful things in the world. And you're about to hear about that. So God and Jacob were face to face. They were, they were contending face to face even though he couldn't see God and God didn't want him to see his face in the true daylight because that would kill him. But he was face to face with God and as a result of that face to face encounter with God then Jacob was now ready to go face to face with his brother Esau. And this is the pattern of Christian life is that you go face to face with people that you're in conflict with. We find that in Matthew 18:15. You can look that up later. Matthew 18:15. 18, 18, so Jacob changes after wrestling with God face to face and he learns that he needs to face his brother face to face. And that's a sign of spiritual maturity. Jacob changed. He grew spiritually that day, that night, and he became Israel. And God wanted to reward this maturity. That's the great thing. So Esau's changed, and he's, not, he's actually not, no longer consoling himself with the thought of killing his brother. He just wants his brother back. Look at verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 4 in your Bible. Look at that. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, except for the one that's six verses later. They're all beautiful, but this is really beautiful. It says in chapter 33, verse 4, Esau runs. He runs to meet Jacob. Does that remind you of another story in the Bible? Call it out. Prodigal son. The father, when he sees the son in the distance, runs to his son. He doesn't go like this. Well, he's going to have to walk some shame till he gets here. And then when he gets here, we'll just see. We'll have to make him feel pretty rotten. And then maybe we'll, then we'll maybe let him back in the back door. No. The father runs to his son. Esau runs to his brother Jacob. Esau's the older brother. Esau's an older man. Right? He's in his 40s or 50s. It is totally undignified for men to run in this culture. Totally undignified. Servants run. Because you tell them to go get you something. If you run, you're acting like a servant. That's a, servant. That's a loss of honor. Jogging had not been invented yet. <laughs> People didn't need it because they barely had enough food. Nobody was overweight back then, you know. It was not a problem. They got plenty of exercise just living. No jogging. Esau ran to his brother. Wow. Esau was dying for reconciliation. He wasn't consoling himself with the thought of murdering his brother. He was like, I want my brother back. I want my little brother back. I don't care about all that stuff. And we find that all those gifts that had come his way, Esau just, you know, I don't want that. I want you. I want the relationship to be restored. I want my brother. And it says he embraces his brother. This is something my son remembers about the story. My son loves hugs. And so I guess when people hug in the Bible, it's really memorable to him, which I'm glad that that's memorable. He said, my son said, Esau hugged his brother for a long time. It's true. So Esau's not interested in the people or the gifts. He's interested in his brother. And I, I can imagine, uh, you know how sometimes a hug can go too long and then it gets a little awkward? I think this one was just broke all records. You know, it was just like, 20 years, I haven't seen you. I'm going to hug you for 20 minutes now. And I don't care what anyone says or thinks. Now, the first most beautiful verse 
in this passage. Verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 10. And verse 10, please underline, highlight, put a star in your Bible next to verse 10. We're talking about being face to face. What does Jacob say to his brother Esau? For to see your face, the face of reconciliation, is like seeing the face of who? God. Is that powerful or what? To see your face in reconciliation is like seeing the face of God. From this I take that to see the face of somebody we have reconciled with is to see the face of God. We don't get too many options of it, but I'd say we should maximize our opportunity to have this experience in someone else. To see the face of someone who forgives you is to see the face of God. I'm going to cry. To see the face of someone who forgives you is to see the face of God. It's astounding. It's a foretaste of heaven. Heaven is the place where we can look God in the face and be totally safe. Heaven is that morning when we don't have to worry about being wrestling with God and not making it because we can be face-to-face to God because of what Jesus has done for us. When we see God in heaven, we will see someone who has reconciled with us because of the death of his son. And you get a tiny foretaste. I love this idea of a foretaste. It's like an appetizer. You get a foretaste of heaven when you see the face of someone who has forgiven you. You see a glimpse of the face of God. I'm going to leave it to you to hope for more of those, but also with the sobering homework, and this is homework. If to see the face of a person who forgives you is to see the face of God, Whose face do we see in the face of someone who will not forgive us? Whose face do other people see when we refuse to forgive them? I'm not going to tell you. You, I encourage you to go home and think about that, though. If we claim to live by the scriptures, withholding forgiveness is not an option, and I'm terrified of what other people would see in me if they don't see reconciliation when they ask for it. I want to offer a prayer. Um, But you should really pray this for yourself. I'm going to offer a prayer that God will bring some crisis into your life. Are you with me? No, you're like, Tuesday's not a good day. Maybe Wednesday? I'm going to pray that God will bring crisis into my life and into your life. I want God to bring a crisis into your relationship with him so that if your relationship with him is stuck, it can get unstuck so that you can receive his salvation and his protection so that you can see him face to face and be safe. And I'm also going to pray for a crisis. If you happen to be in an unresolved relationship, I'm going to pray for a crisis so that that can move somewhere and get to the next level. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this foretaste that we get, both of the incarnation, of the gospel. And we pray for, and we don't do this um, lightly, 
but in all soberness. Lord, we pray for crisis in our relationship with you. That if we're stuck with you, we can get on to the next level and reconcile. And Father, there may be a relationship that we have right now that is um, broken, where communication has broken down, where we're stuck in old patterns that continue to repeat. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to bring crisis into those relationships so that we can take the first step, so that somebody may see in us your face when reconciliation takes place. And Lord, we ask this because we know that you want to give it. In Jesus' name, amen.